Hi, everyone. Just a quick note before the episode starts, which is that I started using a new audio interface while recording these episodes, which means the sound quality was a lot better, but the microphone was a lot more sensitive. So it picked up a lot of my computer fan noises, which is not ideal. I have done what I can to ameliorate that, but the sound quality is not exactly what I was hoping for for this episode. It's still good. I still like this episode. Just be aware. Okay. Welcome to Backlog Books. In this podcast, I will be recapping and discussing what I have been reading lately. My name is Kara. Thank you for joining me, and please be prepared for spoilers. Oh, hang on. You're going to love this. It's the second anniversary of this podcast. Sorry, not sorry for the horrible noises, which you also had to suffer through in the last episode. I can't believe I've been doing this for two years. I can't believe I've hit over 50 episodes. I can't believe you're still listening. So thank you for listening, even if this is your first time or if you've been listening since the beginning. Thanks, Mom. I'm just really pleased that this has gone on so long and that I still find so much joy in doing it. Thank you for joining me on this journey. Let's just dive right in. This time we are talking about Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston. Here is the summary. Fair and long-legged, independent and articulate, Janie Crawford sets out to be her own person, no mean feat for a black woman in the 30s. Janie's quest for identity takes her through three marriages and into a journey back to her roots. Their Eyes Were Watching God was published in 1937. Our author, Zora Neale Hurston, was born in 1891. Later in life, she would shave 10 years off of her age so that she could go and finish high school. And she never reclaimed those 10 years, always giving her age 10 years younger than it actually was, which, good for her. She was a folklorist and anthropologist as well as a writer. She is part of the Harlem Renaissance. Her work faded to obscurity within her lifetime, though. She died in 1960 and was buried in an unmarked grave. Interest in Hurston's work was revived in part due to the efforts of Alice Walker, another writer. Walker was the first African-American woman to win the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction for her novel The Color Purple. In 1975, Walker published an article titled In Search of Zora Neale Hurston, in which she told the story of seeking out Hurston's grave and finally giving it a headstone. The initial reception of this book was lukewarm at best. However, in 2019, over 80 years after it was published, their Eyes Were Watching God was included on the BBC's list of 100 Most Influential Novels. Content warnings for this book include domestic abuse and racial discrimination. 
This is a very well-studied and well-documented book. If you want a more complete list of content warnings, I'm sure you can find one. As I discovered back when I read Mrs. Dalloway, it's good to get new editions of classics. One of the benefits of doing so is that there are often essays and footnotes in them, which help the reader to understand the context and the content of the book. Often you'll get a mini-biography of the author and essays about the effect that their work had back when it was published and up to the present, which is not a thing that I had for Mrs. Dalloway, but is a thing I had for this book. Like I said earlier, this book was published during the Harlem Renaissance, which was a period from around 1910 to late 1930s, considered a golden age in African-American culture. There was a concerted, coordinated effort from many people to create art, basically, and there was a surge of all kinds of art, of writing and music and plays and so much stuff from African Americans, a large majority of whom were living in Harlem, New York City. Along with Hurston, other notable people from the Renaissance include poet Langston Hughes, musicians like Louis Armstrong and Duke Ellington, playwrights like Willis Richardson, and so many more. The effects of the Harlem Renaissance were many and varied, but just a few include laying groundwork for African-American literature, introducing more Black actors and playwrights to American theater, and giving Black creators and thinkers control of the representation of African-Americans, which many people credit as one of the first steps toward the civil rights movement. Now, as occasionally happens, I'm going to read some passages from this book to you. I really enjoyed Hurston's writing. There were a lot of really beautiful lines, and I'd like to share them with you. So our story begins with Janie Crawford, a young black woman, coming to life. This is the story of her discovering herself and the world. In chapter two, Janie saw her life like a great tree in leaf, with the things suffered, things enjoyed, things done and undone. Dawn and doom was in the branches. It was a spring afternoon in West Florida. Janie had spent most of the day under a blossoming pear tree in the backyard. She had been spending every minute that she could steal from her chores under that tree for the last three days. That was to say, Ever since the first tiny bloom had opened, it had called her to come and gaze on a mystery. From barren brown stems to glistening leaf buds, from the leaf buds to snowy virginity of bloom, it stirred her tremendously. How? Why? It was like a flute song forgotten in another existence and remembered again. What? How? Why? This singing she heard that had nothing to do with her ears. The rose of the world was breathing out smell. It followed her through all her waking moments and caressed her in her sleep. Oh, to be a pear tree, any tree in bloom, with kissing bees singing of the beginning of the world. She was sixteen. She had glossy leaves and bursting buds, and she wanted to struggle with life, 
but it seemed to elude her. Janie was raised by her grandmother, and as she reaches toward adulthood, her grandmother is worried for her that she'll be taken advantage of and left without protection, so she makes Janie marry an older man named Logan Killick. He is much older than her. Their life together starts okay. She wonders and hopes that marriage will eventually lead to love, but soon realizes that is not the case. Logan doesn't want a partner. He wants a worker. Chapter 3 begins. There are years that ask questions and years that answer. Janie had had no chance to know things, so she had to ask. Did marriage end the cosmic loneliness of the unmated? Did marriage compel love like the sun the day? And by the end of the chapter, it says, Janie knew now that marriage did not make love. Janie's first dream was dead, so she became a woman. And while Janie is mourning her first dream, struggling to figure out how to survive what her life has become, down the road comes a new man, Joe Starks. And Joe is a big man, a big presence and personality, and he offers Janie a chance at a new life. She hesitates, remembering her grandmother's warnings about men who offer the whole world to a young woman. Often they're lying and merely hoping to get said young woman into bed before they abandon her. But Janie decides to go with him because she would rather take the chance than remain where she is. She leaves Logan and marries Joe, who takes her to a new town, Eatonville. And Eatonville, Florida, is a real place. It was one of the first self-governing all-black towns in the United States. Hurston actually lived in Eatonville as a child, and it features in many of her stories. For her, it was a place where African Americans could live as they wanted, without worrying about trying to conform or fit into white society. And Janie's life is richer in Eatonville, literally. Joe is the mayor, he runs the store, he is well-respected by everyone, but he keeps the community out of Janie's reach, putting her on a pedestal and not allowing her to interact with anyone. Joe wants a trophy wife, a trophy, not a partner. He scolds her if she ever acts in a way he doesn't like. She always has to be the proper mayor's wife. And as a result, people around town think that she thinks of herself as too good for them. But Janie desperately wants to be involved, to sit with everyone together at the store at night and tell stories and play checkers. But she bows to her husband's wishes, not wanting to cause a fuss. She literally packs herself away. In chapter 7, the years took all the fight out of Janie's face. For a while, she thought it was gone from her soul. No matter what Joe did, she said nothing. She had learned how to talk some and leave some. She was a rut in the road. Plenty of life beneath the surface, but it was kept beaten down by the wheels. 
Sometimes she stuck out into the future, imagining her life different from what it was. But mostly, she lived between her hat and her heels, with her emotional disturbances like shade patterns in the woods, come and gone with the sun. Eventually, Joe gets sick and dies. Janie can't find it in herself to mourn for the man who kept her small so he could be big. She acts the part for the town, but inside, she's finding herself for the first time in 20 years, figuring out who she is and what she likes and what she wants to do. She's not in a rush to change her situation anymore. And there's a lot of talk about a woman's place in this book. It's very 1930s. Many characters from Janie's grandma to Janie's friends in Eatonville see keeping a man's house for him and doing nothing else as enviable. And a lot of that is influenced by the recent history of slavery also. But Janie, after keeping house for two husbands, reflects in chapter 12, I always did want to get around a whole heap, but Joe wouldn't allow me to. When I wasn't in the store, he wanted me to just sit with folded hands and sit there. And I'd sit there with the walls creeping up on me and squeezing all the life out of me. These educated women got a heap of things to sit down and consider. Somebody done told them what to sit down for. Nobody ain't told poor me, so sitting still worries me. I wants to utilize myself all over. So Janie is rediscovering herself, or maybe just discovering herself for the first time in widowhood. She's turning down endless suitors who are attracted to her long hair and her money. She's not in a rush. She has a secure place in life. A suitor would have to offer her something pretty good, something better than protection or money to get her attention. And then, wouldn't you know it, down the road comes another man, Tea Cake Woods, who is younger than Janie and does what no other man has. He treats her like a person, not like an ornament or a workhorse. He provides for her and teaches her checkers and how to shoot. They talk and laugh together, and he always wants her with him, whether he's gambling or working. He wants to know what she thinks and feels, and Janie is drawn to him, but she's also afraid, because he might just be too good to be true. But in the end, for Janie, when it comes down to it, she would rather take the chance. And so, they run away together and get married. And it's a little bit of a rocky start at first, but after they're married, in chapter 13... Tea cake drifted off into sleep, and Janie looked down on him and felt a self-crushing love. So her soul crawled out from its hiding place. And that's an image that has stuck with me since I read this book. Just the idea that, like, you can be so worn down by life and by circumstances that you just live between your hat and your heels, and your soul is hiding somewhere. So for two years, Tea Cake and Janie are partners. 
They go everywhere together, they do everything together, and they're happy. Janie has a community in this new place. She talks with her neighbors, they laugh and tell stories, they work hard, they keep house, and they're alive. It's not always easy. The work is hard. They live in the American South in the 30s. And then after two years together, there is a hurricane. They hesitate to leave when everyone else flees because they don't want to abandon the home they love and the life that they built. Eventually, though, they accept that they have to leave, but they have delayed so long that they have to fight against rising water to get to safety. Along the way, Tea Cake saves Janie from a rabid dog, but it bites him before it dies. He dies not long after, and Janie, alone again, returns to Eatonville. And in the end, back in Eatonville, back in her big house that she used to live in with Joe, empty except for Janie, she tells her story to her friend, the heartaches and trials, the fear and the love, and she has grown so much from her early days looking at the pear tree. She knows who she is now. She's comfortable with herself and in her life. And this is how it ends, which is just nice. A little spoiler for you, because I like it. Then Tea Cake came prancing around her where she was, and the song of the sigh flew out of the window and lit in the top of the pine trees. Tea Cake with a sun for a shawl. Of course he wasn't dead. He could never be dead until she herself had finished feeling and thinking. The kiss of his memory made pictures of love and light against the wall. Here was peace. She pulled in her horizon like a great fish net, pulled it from around the waist of the world and draped it over her shoulder. So much of life in its meshes. She called in her soul to come and see. I really enjoyed this book. Hurston was a very talented writer, and I hope you heard some of that in the quotes that I read. Bear in mind that it is kind of dark, also. It is a book from the 30s. It's going to be different from what we expect out of books now, and it's very informed by the recent history of slavery. And, in case anyone's keeping track of that, I know I wasn't until recently, this is another one from my shelf of backlog books. It's the whole point of this podcast, which makes, I looked it up, I think I have read 14 of the books from that shelf out of the 50-something books I have talked about on this podcast. So my percentages aren't great, but I am slowly making progress. And this is one I'm definitely keeping. I'm excited to read it again sometime. If you want more media like this, I suggest looking up works from the Harlem Renaissance. I don't have any specific recommendations. I was trying to find something that I might have read before, but I think I have only ever read some Langston Hughes, which I do recommend. His poetry was lovely. I don't know yet what I'm talking about next time. I think it will be The Cartographers by Pung Shepherd. But don't hold me to that. As always, 
If you would like to contact me, you can email me at backlogbookspod at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to support it, the best way to do that right now is to rate and review it or share it with a friend. You can find the pod on Facebook at Backlog Books Podcast or at backlogbooks.com. The music is by Joseph McDade. You can hear more of his work at josephmcdade.com. Thank you for spending this time with me. I hope to talk with you again soon.